Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 12th of May with me, Ian Welsh. Bumper edition this week. Coming up are some more reflections from Innovation Forum's recent Sustainable Apparel and Textiles conference, featuring Ola Baikowska from Circle Economy, Nick Allen from Patagonia, and Omar Rahman from Surety Enterprises. We also have an interview with Palm Oil Business Syme Darby Plantation's Chief Sustainability Officer Rashid Anwaridin. We talk about why developing truly responsible commodity sourcing supply chains means seeking out labour rights breaches and remediating them, and the progress that can be made to ensure that workers are treated ethically and fairly. First though, it's time for a quick roundup of some sustainable business news. Energy transition and the race to decarbonise the global economy is an ever-hotter topic. The International Energy Agency's latest electricity market report shows that new renewable energy sources, along with nuclear power, will cover expected increases in demand between 2022 and 2025. Over the same period, renewables alone will become the single biggest source of the world's electricity, finally displacing coal. Total renewable generation is projected to reach 10,799 terawatt-hours by 2025, 35% of total global share. Coal is expected to fall to 33% of global share. Significant increases in demand will come primarily from Asia. By 2025, China alone will account for around a third of global electricity demand, up from only 5% in 1990. Circle Economy, a think tank based in the Netherlands, has published a new research report highlighting the enormous potential for the economies of the Global South, something that Circle Economy says has been significantly underestimated. Research into socio-economic benefits of adopting a circular approach has been focused on developed economies, accounting for 84% of research so far. Among the conclusions from the report are that moving towards a more circular economy approach in developing economies can contribute to improving worker conditions, easing the impact of poverty, and such factors as gender discrimination. The report was co-authored by the World Bank's Solution for Youth Employment Programme and the International Labour Organisation. Continuing the circular economy theme, the World Green Building Council has put out its strategy for more circular principles in the construction sector. The council's new Built Environment Playbook contains 20 suggestions for how sector companies can embed the principles of circular design and construction, and think of nature-based solutions that will lower building impacts. The playbook contains advice on how to reduce consumption of materials, ensuring optimal lifespan, embedding end-of-life disassembly into design, and thinking of how to reuse and recycle materials more generally. The council has called for the construction sector to think of every building as a bank of materials that has value beyond the life of that building itself. Another emerging issue is innovative nature project financing, including debt for nature conversion. Ecuador has just completed the largest such scheme principally to allow the nation to allocate resources for conservation projects in the Galapagos Islands. The facility has been put together by the Ecuadorian government in partnership with the US International Development Finance Corporation, the Inter-American Development Bank and other agencies. The Galapagos Marine Bond will exchange 1.63 billion of Ecuador's international bonds for a $656 million loan, generating some $323 million for marine conservation through to the early 2040s. At Innovation Forum's recent Sustainable Apparel and Textiles conference in Amsterdam, I spoke with some of the participants to reflect on the conversations and discussion. Coming up are Circle Economy strategist Ola Bakowska, Patagonia's Director of Transparency Nick Allen, and Surety Enterprises Marketing Vice President Omar Rehman. 
I'm joined by Ola Bakowska, who's a strategist at Circular Economy. Welcome, Ola. We've just been talking about the potential for circular economy in the apparel sector. Perhaps you can give us a bit of background from your perspective as to what you see as the potential for recycling. There's a huge momentum for recycling right now, especially shifting from only post-industrial waste recycling to post-consumer waste recycling. That's a huge mountain of waste. It's distributed around the world. It's mixed composition. So, of course, it's a tough one, but we think this is really necessary to accelerate circularity right now. And, you know, brands want recycled feedstock. They want more recycled feedstock at more democratic prices, so to speak. So I think we really all need to invest. And where I've seen it work best is really where the brand is creating this enabling environment for sorters, collectors, recyclers. But also you have to think collaboratively. So you cannot only be like, oh, I only want to recycle my jeans and I want to make my new jeans out of it. Because in reality, the post-consumer textiles, it's a mixed fraction. It has a huge potential for reuse, but according to our Sorting for Circularity study, even the lowest value textiles, 74% of them can be recycled using existing chemical and mechanical recycling technologies. Potential is huge, and I think it's just a matter of creating new alliances and enabling environment for this to become business and business as usual in the near future. So that's interesting. So we don't need to be thinking about changing design techniques now because we already are at a place where so much of materials can be recycled already. Is well, there, is there no. no. I need to stop you there. I think we really need to think about how we design and what products we release on the market because the reason we have so many tones of post-consumer textiles is because of overproduction and I think there's a role perhaps for legislation there which is coming on eco-design, eco-design modulation and EPR and we hope that this will also link to the volumes that brands release because a lot of what is released is really, really, really difficult to recycle. Sometimes it's small pieces. For certain textiles, it's going to be really hard to build this business case. What is the easiest to recycle is still cotton-rich and polyester-rich products. And even to recycle them, it's not like you can just pick it up and do it. You really need to collect a big, big stream stable big stream of feedstock for the recycler and you need to also prepare it for that process and the costs of manual labor involved in sorting and preparing for recycling are significant so right now we really haven't built a good equation there i know a lot of people are looking at automation but according to some of our studies for example to build a business case in rotterdam we're not at that stage yet where we could build here a fully automated facility I think for some companies, full automation is going to be the answer, and for some, it's going to be a mix of manual labor and automation. And how we design and what materials we put into products is still a really important case. And I also hope the legislation will mandate the use of recycled content, and this will hopefully take us in the right direction at the right bigger scale. Well, certainly, based on the number of people we had in our session just now and the number of questions and engagement, something that a lot of people in the sector are taking a lot of interest in. Ola from Circular Economy, thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. I'm with Nick Allen, Director of Transparency at Patagonia. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. So we've been talking about traceability and transparency. What are the challenges facing Patagonia delivering the transparency and traceability that your customers expect? Some of it has to do with the number of drivers that we have, the 
needs that we have to meet. So we have retail partners that we work with. We also have our own customer base that has a lot of questions. And we're members of organizations that have reporting requirements. And also we're, we're brand certified for certain materials. And then upcoming, we do see that there's going to be more mandatory reporting that we're going to have to be doing. So there's a lot of different needs that we have and different data that they want to get as well. While we have a fairly small supply chain compared to other brands, it's still really challenging to gather all of this information from our own supply chain, collate that data, and report it in a way which is useful and is also to the point. We're providing the information and not anything extraneous. It's really challenging to sort of manage all of that and for it not to overwhelm everything we do. I can certainly imagine that. One of the big changes that's coming uh, that we talked about at the event just now is the impact of mandatory reporting and mandatory transparency. How will regulation mandating transparency impact, do you think? What will be the consequences of it? My focus very often is on marketing claims and on providing substantiation, so I see things through that lens. But it does seem like most of these initiatives are pointing to the same thing, which is in the past what we've done has been to do a lot of due diligence to back up whatever our claim is or to support our strategies but that's been something that we've done in-house for basically ourselves in the event that we need to provide this to someone and it looks like for a number of these the timing is changing and so now you will have to provide evidence when you make a claim at the same time that's a, a big change because you know it requires vast amounts of data documents and coordination too between the timing and the claim and then with other reporting with supply chain transparency reporting that we're seeing in the future and coming out too there's still a lot of questions about what it will eventually look like for us it's basically just going to mean that we're going to have to get better at making sure everything is on time and that we review it regularly as well mm -hmm. because things change the thing about the supply chains is they're not fixed they change fairly regularly and so we want to make sure that all of that information is up to date and accurate i mean it's going to be i would imagine a danger that brands and other businesses are going to reduce the communications in these, in these issues because of the risks i mean we're going to see the rise of the green hashing the latest buzzfeed i mean is that a thing that's a risk we're going to see is green hashing going to become a thing I think it already is happening to an extent for brands that are looking at this legislation which is coming out because you can't help but be cautious about what you're saying. There's pros and cons to this and I have a hard time being totally objective because you know, my role is basically to make sure we have evidence to back up our content claims. So I think things in that sort of context. On the plus side, I do think that there are so many claims out there and it can be ubiquitous. And so for consumers, I think it loses its value when it applies to everything. You know, as a brand, it can be very frustrating too because we want to make claims around our sustainable materials. If everybody is making similar claims but they're not doing the work, it can be a frustration. I do think that it's an important corrective to what we see, which is sort of inflation in general. There are also downsides. If as a brand you are not going to make a claim because you don't feel you have the evidence to back it up, and maybe internally you decide we're not going to source that material because it's more expensive and if we can't make the claim, what's the point? Our incentive is marketing. Then that would be an unintended consequence. It's not our case, I can pretty much guarantee because it's part of our DNA to source these materials and we have these really firm commitments. I do think it probably would happen. I hope though that longer term, 
that is not the case. Like a, maybe in the short term, there will be some step backs, but longer term, the consumers are asking for these materials. I think the brands also know that it's the right thing to do. There will be cases of people who stop doing this if they can't make the claim. Yeah. And yeah. that's also because, you know, the incentive is basically about marketing and there is no other incentives for doing that right now. I guess we'll find out. Nick right. Allen from Patagonia, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. I'm with Umar Riban from Surti Enterprises. Welcome. Thank you, Ian. Umar, you're one of a number of people from Pakistan who are attending the event. Can you give a bit of a context of how climate change is impacting Pakistan from your perspective of someone native in Pakistan? I think this is a very interesting topic and I would like to add a little bit context to the climate change. We first need to see how much climate change is contributed by Pakistan. So from a global perspective, Pakistan is contributing less than 1% to the carbon emissions globally. G20 countries contribute almost 80% of the emissions. However, if you talk about the implications faced by countries, Pakistan is one of the most vulnerable countries to the climate change. It has multifaceted challenges, which includes, number one, urban flooding that we saw last year. Almost one third of the country was submerged under the water. We had 30 million people who were displaced because of urban flooding. More than 1,600 people lost their lives. More than 12 million people were pushed down the poverty line. 40% of the cotton crop got destroyed and there were far more implications. I'm talking about just a few things. And the financial implication is even beyond that. According to a UN estimate, more than $30 billion is required to bring the restructuring. On the other side, if you talk about the glaciers, Pakistan is also having one of the glacier system look like the Himalayas, which extends to 3,500 kilometers and cover eight countries, including Pakistan. They're melting at a very fast pace, almost 80 times faster pace than it took the time to form those glaciers. In the last 30 years alone, 2,000 years of ice has been melted in just 30 years. So all of that is impacting almost 10 rivers, which includes one of ours as well, which is Indus River in Pakistan. If this is going to continue with the business as usual, we will have a lot of challenges coming in, in the entire country, in fact, in the entire region. Almost 1.6 billion people in these eight countries depend on these glaciers for their irrigation needs and also for their drinking needs. We need to take into account what is happening on the climate frontier. It's a global challenge as stated by UN Secretary Journal and it demands global action. Thank you for that context. Surti Enterprises, you're a manufacturer of denim, um, yeah. denim products. You're a supplier to many of the brands that are here. As a supplier, what do you need from your customers to enable you to take climate action? Surti is one of the leading suppliers to both European and US brands, top brands in USA and top brands in Europe. Before I jump into that, what I need from the brands, we understand the sense of sustainability in the entire production facility, entire value chain. We are doing a lot on our end as well. We are self-driven, largely. Obviously, we are working with the brands and they have their targets as well. So uh, it's partly driven by us because we keep sustainability close to our heart. It's our obligation to the community to work all those avenues where we can have a lesser carbon footprint, lesser water footprint, and all those things. If we talk about what brands can do, so besides working, having a framework dictating that these are the terms that you have to follow, you have to have carbon footprint of this much reduction by 2030, what they can do is they can put an incentive on manufacturing because in the sustainability journey, there are enterprises, there are large scale manufacturers 
who are ahead of the curve and there are those who are hardly putting in any effort so if the brand see both of them with one lens i think it will be demotivating for those who are putting in a lot of energy resources and investments in that area one thing is brands need to value the efforts made by not only surti but also those who are making all those efforts by having cleaner energy having machinery which is lesser carbon footprint and energy efficiency so brands need to value those efforts of all those people who are working in these avenues and pay them well or give them a sort of uh, comforting in business assurance for the next 3 years we should become the priority choice for them so these are the few things that they should consider and besides that you know shipping industry contributes a lot to the carbon emissions so logistics also plays an important role so i would also suggest country verticality i am moving fabric from my fabric mills to different parts of the world it involves shipping it involves carbon emissions why not i get because i have uh, our own factory which can produce garments as well so why not making my product my fabric being produced in one of my garment facility that will number one improve their lead times and secondly it will reduce the carbon footprint that will be generated by moving the fabric from pakistan to let's say bangladesh or vietnam and then getting the stretching done there and then moving the finished product to usa or europe so country verticality is also very important that we think brands should consider that will also help abate the emission i guess there's a lot that can be done around incentives as well that's yeah. something that we've been talking about a lot for the past couple of days many thanks indeed umar rahman from surti enterprises thanks for your insights thank you so much lovely meeting you Following the recent Innovation Forum Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference in London, I caught up with Sindari Plantations Chief Sustainability Officer Rashid Anwaruddin. We're going to talk a bit about migrant workers and some of the risks and solutions that are necessary. Rashid, why don't you start by giving us a bit of insight into what for you are the typical migrant worker risks in tropical commodity supply chains? If you look at commodities as a whole or any supply chain, right? Whether it's a tropical commodity or not, you know the typical risks are essentially the same when it comes to migrant workers. We're looking at risks for migrant workers in the source country itself and also in the destination countries. You know, the risks that we typically look at, for example, in the source country, the risk of debt bondage, for example, where there's a risk of migrant workers having to pay recruitment fees, having to take up loans and debts just to pay for recruitment fees in the source countries. Another risk that we look at is basically looking at what they call contract substitution, where the workers themselves they don't really understand or are misinformed on the type of work that is being offered to them. It comes as a surprise to them when they are told one thing in the source country, and when they arrive in the destination country, they are doing something completely different. When you look at the destination countries itself, the risks we look at are around how do we make sure that the rights of these migrant workers are protected. So you know, we how do we make sure that they're not exploited when it comes to things like wages, things like housing, things like physical or verbal abuse, or excessive working hours. So in general, you know, in any sort of supply chain, when it comes to migrant workers, typically those are the sort of risks that are associated whenever there are migrant workers. How is Sime Darby Plantations workforce structured? Sime Darby Plantation itself, we are an integrated palm oil company, so we. operate across the entire value chain when it comes to our workers itself it's mainly concentrated at our upstream uh, operations so in total we have around 80000 workers 
spread across all of our operations across Malaysia, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands. With regards to like migrant workers themselves, it's mainly a risk in Malaysia because a majority of the workers that we have in Malaysia are migrant workers. Whereas, you know, workers in Indonesia, Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands, they're local workers. In Malaysia itself, just to give you an idea, right, we roughly have around 20,000 workers and they're spread across more than 150 different locations. And the migrant workers themselves, they come from nine different countries, but majority of them are from Indonesia and India. And the rest are from countries like Bangladesh, Nepal, Pakistan, for example. So that gives us an idea of where these migrant workers come from. Within the country themselves specifically, I mean, are these people coming from the cities in source countries? Are they coming from rural communities? What does that look like? Typically, what happens is that the workers themselves will come from rural communities. They would then come to the cities to attend interviews for companies. And during the interviews themselves, then only they would find out what exactly the work that is being offered. Once they are selected by a particular company, and then the worker will then be processed for all the related documentation, things like passports, visas, and medical screening, and those sort of things, prior to departure to the source country. Is that how things were structured for Saim Dabe Plantation? The way that we work is a bit different compared to how typical companies would do when it comes to recruiting migrant workers. So for us, we actually have what we call a dedicated worker management unit. We call it WMU, which is in charge of recruiting migrant workers in the source country. So what they do is they actually conduct direct recruitment in the source country itself, where they, our team would fly to, for example, Lombok, Indonesia to conduct the interviews ourselves. And the reason why we do this is because we want to make sure that the communications that are being done to the workers are direct from the company itself. And how it works in source country, for example, in Indonesia, is that you know, we would then work with local recruitment agents. And the local recruitment agents, their role is mainly to source for the workers, to attend the interview sessions itself. And once our team has interviewed and selected them, the recruitment agents would then assist in conducting the various processes and applications for visas, passport documentation and medical checkups that I mentioned just now to prepare them to come to Malaysia. So when we talk about the risks involved in recruitment of migrant workers in the source country itself, what we've done is we've put in various controls in place to mitigate some of these risks. So, for example, the interviews themselves, prior to the interview sessions, we actually conduct briefing sessions to the potential workers and to really try to make them understand, number one, what's the sort of work that they should be expecting when they come to Malaysia and the sort of wages, sort of benefits which are provided to them. And during this briefing session, we also explain to them responsible recruitment policy as well, where we actually cover the recruitment costs for the workers from the point of interview onwards. And you know, that's quite key here because with regards to the issue of recruitment fees itself, we needed to put various controls in place to ensure that the agents don't collect any sort of recruitment fees or recruitment costs from the workers themselves. So what we did was we actually, one, conducted an open tender last year to reselect the recruitment agents that we work with in Indonesia. Currently, we only work with six agents in Indonesia. And what we did was we conducted a due diligence with each and every one of them physically. We visited their sites to really understand whether or not they are able to meet our responsible recruitment procedures. 
And then any gaps which are identified, the recruitment agents would then undergo what we call capacity building, where we actually conduct training for them to close the gaps. Some of the things that we also have done is that the responsible recruitment procedure, RRP in short, those requirements are now also included in their contract service agreements, where they have a service level agreements or KPIs included in there, which they need to meet. And what we do with regards to ensuring that they don't charge any costs to the workers themselves, we put it in various controls in place to interview the workers separately from the, the actual work job interview itself. So for example, once they are selected, an independent team from HQ would then go to Indonesia to conduct uh, sample interviews with workers to ask whether or not they've paid any recruitment costs, uh, recruitment costs, and whether they understand their jobs or not. And once they arrive in Malaysia itself, there's a centralized induction program which each and every worker will need to undergo for a period of two days. And during this period, we actually get a third party to interview the workers again to try and understand whether or not any costs are being incurred by the workers. Once they are deployed to the various operating units themselves as well, we would then conduct interviews with the workers as well to really understand if there are any costs they may have incurred. And any sort of issues which are highlighted from any of these sort of control points are then fed back to the agents themselves where they need to uh, remediate. These sort of findings are then included as part of their key performance indicators, KPI assessment at the end of the contract to see whether or not we want to continue working with them. It would then have an impact on the number of workers that we source from them as well. There are a lot of things that we do. Number one, to make sure that the risk of cost being incurred is mitigated. And number two, also as important, is to make sure that the workers understand that the sort of work that's being offered so, you know, things like the you know, translation of all of the contracts are done in the local languages. All of the communication materials are done in less wordy format. So we show videos and pictures instead of text during the, during the briefing sessions. So a lot of effort is being done to reduce the risks in the source country itself. Recruitment fees are the big concern, aren't they? Because that's where in the past and ongoing in many parts of the world, potential workers have to pay a significant fee to be granted the employment and of course that can lead to debt bondage and to other problems but i'm interested in, in looking a little bit about costs because obviously there's a difference between a recruitment fee and the costs for the workers are you saying that migrant workers incur no costs at all to come and work with you all their travel costs all those sort of things that's all part of the package for them the commitment is that once they have been accepted to work for us all of the various costs which may have been incurred for them to actually get the job is covered by Samdabi Plantation. So, for example, things like, you know, all the official costs for passports, for documentation, for visas, for medical checkups. And we also cover costs for the local transportation as well for them to attend the interviews, attend the medical checkups, and even the cost for them to fly to Malaysia as well. You know, those costs are actually covered by us as well. Once they are accepted to work in Saimdabi plantation, uh, they shouldn't have to incur any costs to get the job. Can you give us some examples then of the sorts of initiatives you have in the destination country to ensure that migrant workers are treated properly? Once they're working for you, what are the ongoing initiatives that you've got to ensure that migrant workers are treated properly? When we look at migrant workers itself, we need to make sure that you know, throughout the entire life cycle of them staying and working in Saimdabi, the risks associated with them are mitigated, right? I can walk step by step, right? So upon them arriving in Malaysia, everybody then comes to a centralized induction program. So they spend two days. And during those two days, they are briefed on the sort of work that is expected to them, how they are going to get paid, how do they calculate the wages that they are getting, and the sort of housing that they're getting, the benefits that they're getting. 
and also the grievance mechanisms which are made available to them. And all of this is done, you know, there's a standardized syllabus that they go through for a period of two days before they are deployed to the various operating units. And once they are deployed to the operating units themselves, what we've done, the key thing that we've enhanced in the past couple of years is ensuring that we have enhanced workers' voice in the operations themselves. So a lot of work has been done around there. There are various initiatives that we have implemented throughout our operations in Malaysia to enhance workers' voice. One of the things that we've done is around enhancing our grievance mechanisms. So previously, we had two grievance channels which were made available to them. And what we've done is we've added an additional one. So now we have three grievance channels. Two of them are run by external third parties and they are available in all the different languages of our migrant workers. They are accessible via phone call, WhatsApp, SMS, Facebook Messenger and all those uh, various platforms. The work that we did was trying to, number one, raise awareness on the availability of these grievance channels and to also build trust in them to make sure that the workers trust them. So around raising awareness, there has been a lot of efforts that are being done to market the availability of these grievance channels. So there were posters, briefing sessions. We actually developed videos in the various languages which were distributed via WhatsApp, for example. And what we did was the third parties behind the grievance channels, they also conduct briefing sessions to the workers themselves so that the workers get to know the people that they are talking to as well. And what we've done to build trust grievance channels as well is now we have a dedicated centralized grievance uh, unit uh, at HQ, which is independent from the operations themselves. So, you know, like what I mentioned just now, there are 150 different locations that we operate in Malaysia and all of the grievances are now channeled to a centralized unit at HQ. And the HQ themselves would then decide, depending on the nature of the particular grievance, who would be the necessary people or party to conduct the interview, uh, to conduct the investigation itself. So things which are quite relatively straightforward. So, you know, I don't understand my wages, for example, the operating unit can solve that. Whereas if there are allegations of physical abuse, for example, or verbal abuse, then those sort of investigations are done by an HQ team. And the HQ team now, there are only certain people who can conduct the investigation and all these people undergo training to ensure that they can effectively conduct these sort of investigations because, you know, it's not your typical investigation. And what we've done is that each and every category of different sort of events, we put a deadline in place where easy issues, for example, or low-risk issues will need to be solved within a period of two weeks, whereas more complicated cases need to be resolved within four weeks, for example. What is done as well is that, you know, once the investigation has been completed and once any action has been done, the third-party hotline would then call up the worker themselves to close the loop to check with them whether or not to ask the worker happy with, with the resolution. And only once the worker is happy and satisfied with the resolution, then the case is closed. And what we've seen based on this is that we've had an increase in the number of calls that are raised through our grievance channel. So for example, just in the period of 2022, for one whole year, we received a total of 989 calls where 93% of them have been resolved within the stipulated timeline. And that's one of the things that we have introduced. The second thing that we've introduced is what we call social dialogues. So social dialogues itself is a platform where we set up at each and every one of the operating units where the management and the worker representatives would meet together every two weeks to talk about issues relating to that particular operating unit. So what we actually did was, number one, we needed to conduct an election of uh, worker representatives where 
each nationality is represented in the social dialogue. So, for example, if you have Indonesian workers, Bangladeshi workers, and Indian workers in a particular operating unit, each nationality would have their representative in the social dialogue itself. And we actually conducted a large-scale election where more than 10,000 workers participated in the election, where we have now more than 1,500 worker representatives across all of our operations. Once they are selected, these worker representatives are then trained. Number one, how to participate in a social dialogue. And number two, how to identify and raise issues because their role is basically engage with their community of their nationality to understand what the challenges and issues are to be raised at this particular social dialogue, which happens every two weeks. And then what happens is also the management are also trained to conduct these social dialogues. And number two, to also how do they effectively engage with workers as well. And what we've seen is that this social dialogues has been quite successful. Out of the 150 different operating units that we have across Malaysia, 2022, more than 13,000 issues have been raised, where 96% of them have been resolved to date. A third one that we introduced is also what we call a mobile application called All Pampal, where workers are able to scan a QR code at their houses themselves. To raise issues on housing, so you know if your roof's leaking or your door's not working, uh, you just scan, uh, take your mobile app, scan the QR code, and raise this issue. And there are certain timelines that are being put in place to ensure that they are resolved in a timely manner. And all of these are also made available in languages of our migrant workers themselves to make sure that we include them as well. And what we've seen in 2022, almost 40,000 issues around housing has been raised where more than 99% of them have been resolved. And one thing to also highlight here is that all of these things, the grievance channels, the social dialogues and the mobile app, all of these grievance channels, they are all digitalized. So our grievance channels, we have an online system for that. The social dialogues, there's also an online system where the operating units needs to input all of the outcomes of the social dialogues. And the mobile app as well, there's a centralized database for it. And what we've been able to do now is that we've been able to have and collect a large amount of data with regards to workers, how they feel about working inside Babi Plantation in Malaysia. With the amount of data that we have, we can now have more targeted interventions being put in place to resolve more systemic-related concerns that the workers have. So, for example, one of the most common things that are coming out from the workers are questions with regards to not understanding wages, not understanding how the wages are being calculated. We've done a program where we've conducted briefing sessions at targeted areas around wages. How do you calculate the wages and how do you understand their payslips? And the payslips themselves are being translated in all the different languages. Guidebooks are being provided in different languages to all the workers to understand their wages and how to calculate them and you know how to read their payslips as well. So in general, you know the, the way that we see it is that once they are deployed to the various operating units, There are various channels which they are aware of and trust to make sure that in the event that any of these issues or concerns they have, they have a channel to raise them and the resolution can be done in an effective and timely manner. Very comprehensive, clearly, very comprehensive approach that you have. It seems to me it's very interesting that clearly for you, success is indeed finding problems. You've accepted that the problems are there. 
and you want to now find them. So you mean, I guess your statistics internally about issues raised and problems solved must increase because you're actually looking for them and finding them and resolving them. I mean, it does feel that companies are being more transparent about the challenges here and about what they're doing about worker rights. Do you think that's the case? Is this something you're seeing across the board? Clearly, it is the case at Sime Derby Plantation, but what are you seeing elsewhere? There's a lot more attention and scrutiny around social matters when it comes to you know how companies operate now. Previously, in the past 15, 20 years, the attention has always been on the deforestation side of things, the environmental side of things. So what we've seen in the past five to 10 years, a lot more attention has been done towards the social side of things. And the thing about social-related issues is not as straightforward or clear-cut as an environmental-related issue, right? So if you're an environmental-related issue, things like deforestation, you can apply technology, satellite monitoring, for example, and you can identify that particular issue. But with regards to social-related matters, we are dealing with people. And people itself, no matter how you put the policies in place, no matter how you train them, raise awareness, do capacity building, there's always what we call a bell curve, where always 2 to 3% of the people who may not follow the rules, right? On our side, the key thing here is to make sure that the policies, procedures, capacity building, training that we put in place covers a majority of the workers and also managers and mandos and supervisors which follow the rules and having all of these grievance channels, mechanisms and platforms in place such that in the event that there are any issues, on our side, we can detect it and resolve it as soon as possible. Because at the end of the day, the key thing for us is we need to ensure that workers themselves, employees of the organization, and they need to be happy working with us. Happy workers are basically productive workers, right? This is the sort of commitments that we've uh, always had in place. For example, we had our human rights charter, our child protection policy, our gender policy in place for quite a while now. And basically, we've also put in worker satisfaction surveys to ensure that we really understand whether or not the workers themselves are satisfied with working in Saim Dhabi. Because at the end of the day, we need to make sure that workers are happy working in Saim. I totally agree that it does feel that there's significantly more attention now on the social side of corporate impacts. And quite rightly, we can talk about deforestation. We have been talking about deforestation for years, but it does feel that a lot of the social impacts were ignored. Thank you very much indeed, Rashid, for taking us through Saing Derby Plantation's approach on these social issues. Thanks, Ian. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Look out for the second in a two-part briefing on regenerative agriculture from my colleague B. Stevenson that's just been published. And do listen out for the next Monday briefing next week. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye. Thank you.